I acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on which this podcast was recorded, and I pay my respects to elders past, present and emerging. This is Making a Difference, a podcast about people who are making change happen. On the show, you'll hear from people who are making a difference on a day-to-day basis, from the local level in their communities to change on a global scale. You'll learn what makes them tick and the values that are driving their actions. I'm your host, Steve Cooper. Cass Bennett is a mother, a wife, a daughter, an athlete, and was an accountant. In July 2018, Cass was diagnosed with a diffuse astrocytoma, a slow-growing but very intrusive brain tumour. This is a small part of Cass's journey, the creation of the survivorship diary and some hints of what Cass has learned along the way. Hi Cass Bennett, in July 2018, things were going well for you professionally and personally. How would you describe what happened? In early July 2018, I was very busy. I had um, just been promoted into a new role in a big Australian ASX listed company. I had two kids. They were three and five at the time. And it was just all flat out. At the time, I had a really busy life. I was really athletic. I used to go and spend a lot of time running and and you know, playing sports with the kids and stuff, but I was suffering some headaches and I'd been having these headaches on and off for the better part of a couple of months, but just thought that it was one or two wines extra at night. <laughs> You're not alone there. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, um, but generally speaking, we were, we were really living the dream. I was really enjoying my role, really enjoying having the kids at an age where we weren't changing nappies anymore. And I was really looking forward to the, the rest of the year. That was going to be quite a busy year for us. That was a blessing. And you thought that you might have had a bit of sinus infection going on, so you went off to the doctor. That's correct, yeah, yep. So I'd had a bit of some headaches and a, and a, sin- a pretty serious sinus infection from a bout of pneumonia that I'd been recovering from. I went off to see my GP. I saw a GP twice. They just said, it's just sinus, don't worry about it. And then after the third visit, I went back to the GP and just sort of said, look, I can't tell what's wrong with you. I'm going to refer you to the more senior GP in our practice. So I walked in to see Dr. Bartosh, who I'd seen many times before, especially like with kids and stuff. And she took one look at me and just said, it's not sinus. How did she know that? The description of the headaches coming on early in the morning and dissipating by kind of like mid-morning, like nine, ten o'clock, the headache would go. She knew that, that I definitely did have a sinus infection, but the headache was the way I was describing it wasn't wasn't being caused by the sinus. So she sent me off to have a CT scan. And then that was at about nine o'clock on a Monday morning. And they found the they found the like the sinus, obviously, and then a tumor in the CT scan. And I was getting ready to leave the imaging clinic and I was talking to someone on the phone and I was answering emails and stuff. And the lady from the imaging clinic came in and said, like, I need you to put all of this down. We need to do an MRI. I said, well, for starters, I don't have an order for an MRI. And secondly, I don't have time for an MRI. I'm late. And she she said, whatever you have planned today isn't happening. So just put it all down, have a glass of water, and we're going to put you into the MRI machine. I I was like a bit shocked because I didn't have an order for it. It wasn't planned. You usually have to wait for an MRI. And she didn't answer any of those questions. And they wheeled me into the MRI. I was in the machine for about um, an hour and a half. Very itchy nose. (laughs) (laughs) And you're having to keep still. And they wheeled me out and said, your GP's waiting for you. So I walked down the street to my GP 
I arrived there. She had already called and spoken to my husband and said, you should come down here and meet us. And he did. And she just, she cleared her afternoon and she sat with us for about an hour and a half while we talked through what we needed to do and different surgeons and steps and things like that. We talked before, Cass, that sort of raises one of your first life lessons out of this. Yes, get a good GP <laughs> and, and stick with that GP. <laughs> so, continuity of care and a GP who actually responds when they need to respond by the sound that of things. That's, that's sensational. So when it was all cleared, what's, let's get the icky bit over and done with, what's yeah. the diagnosis or what's the condition that you've got? So I have what's called a diffuse astrocytoma. There's about probably 15 centimetres of tumour in my brain, um, which is pretty incredible because these tumours grow slowly. Your brain is able to rewire itself to operate without certain parts of itself. So if I had a faster growing tumour and had had this particular tumour and the size of it, I would have been very, very unwell very quickly. But because it was slow growing, it was something that I just overcame as it was coming up, but eventually, obviously, the headaches became the bigger problem. So, and what's um, I don't know how to ask this, Cass? What's what's the sort what's of the prognosis? Problem? Yeah, the prognosis is not not overly rosy, and they say you might get you might live for eight to ten years after diagnosis. And I've now been diagnosed for three coming years. coming up three. So I've just turned forty one in a little while. So hoping to make forty five. One of the interesting things, though, about these estimates is that because there's such a long time out and they're based on number of patients, that eight years might be, could be 10 for one patient or 15 for one patient and two for another. Yeah. So you have to look at it. It's a law of averages. I've got no control over it. No. The number means nothing at the end of the day. You only live the day that you're in at a time. Yeah. Yeah, probably the big thing I think that changes with that type of a diagnosis is if I knew what the time was, I would know what to do. If it was two years, I would sell the house and travel and do yeah. things like that. If it was five years, I might make a different decision. If it was 10 years, I'd probably yeah. go back to work. Yeah, but so as, yeah. <laughs> you just don't, because you don't know what those years are, it's hard to make a decision on what you'll do. Yeah, Hollywood can make a movie about a bucket list where someone knows the time <laughs> they've got, but I'm presuming life's a bit more realistic or, you know, uncertain. I think uncertain is a really good term. I think there are some some diagnoses, especially with brain cancer, where you do know the timeline. So if you, if you had a daughter that had a DIPG, you would act on that very quickly. This one's a bit greyer. We'll come back to DIPG because I suspect, as we've talked about, it's a good place to finish. We go through life and we manage different sorts of grief. Sometimes it's about losing people, but sometimes it's about disappointment or whatever. What was your sort of grief management strategy, if you like? Denial, denial, denial. <laughs> oh, that's, <laughs> that's in the textbook. Good. <laughs> I'm still in step one. <laughs> what about anger? <laughs> Any of that? Oh, I think sometimes, but only in micro, in yeah. micros. Do you know what I mean? So I might not, might lose my patience for their kids more quickly than I used to or yep. than usually do. Sometimes when the pressure's on, I sort of have a blowout, but I haven't gone through an extended period of anger. Like, yeah. Probably wasn't there, if I'm honest. Like it's just not in my makeup. So some brain cancer patients will be impacted their personality will be impacted because of the mass in their brain. Yep. And there are days when I am so grateful 
that that isn't the impact that that's had on me because those are uncontrollable changes yeah. to a person's personality. And so often when I do get angry, I have to roll back to the I'm so fortunate. I was unlucky with a brain tumor, but I had been very fortunate in other ways. Yeah, yeah. So there's a bit of a continual reminding myself of that. You talked about putting some order and structure in the new kind of change of your life. How did you react against this thing? <laughs> Try to be useful, I think, was probably the best way to put it. So the first thing I did was I did a lot of fundraising walks, runs. I did the, I've done all of the city to surfs that have happened over the past couple of years. I've done the point to pinnacle in Tasmania, raising money for Carrie Pickmore's beans for brain cancer. Yep. I've done, I've sold coffee cups and water bottles and t-shirts in order to raise money and donated that back into different brain cancer foundations. So really my, my process is to try and be useful and I didn't do enough science in school to be useful in that way. <laughs> so, <laughs> no. so I, I hear you, sister. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I was like, if I knew one end of a Bunsen burner from another, I would have definitely been in a lab somewhere. But I can hear scientists all over the world breathe a sigh of relief as I admit that I, in fact, am not good at science. <laughs> Will we not be joining a lab no, team? <laughs> some of us do maths, accounting and economics, and that's fine, and we shouldn't that be judged exactly for that. That is exactly where I landed. <laughs> So you touched on Carrie's beanies. What? Why did you sort of taper off on your fundraising and sort of selling and marketing kind of activities? I'm not very good at it. <laughs> <laughs> I love your self awareness. <laughs> I think we generated about forty five thousand dollars. Oh um, wow! Which isn't which is not lazy. But I couldn't continue to sell merchandise to the same people over and over again. <laughs> So I think if my family and friends, if I'd gone to them one more time and said, I'm doing this mountain walk somewhere, would you please sponsor me? I think the answer would have been a pretty firm no. We've <laughs> already put a lot of money. But also I felt like I could offer something different. So I was very happy to do the fundraising and I would do it again if I felt that it would be useful. But I think that what I wanted to offer was more of myself more of the skills that I have gained in 20 years of working that I might be able to deliver something that's more useful. Let's talk a bit more about that. So what was the idea that you had? How did you come across this diary idea? When I was very first diagnosed, a girlfriend of mine gave me a like a notebook with some yellow post-it notes that she used as uh, page markers and she titled them notes to keep and diagnosis and important appointments, etc. And I used those to sort of think about how better that type of a notebook might be useful for a cancer patient. So I actually still use that diary as my own. How did she have the idea? I think she had a friend who'd had breast cancer. And so it was just sort of something that had been handed on. She had seen someone else give it to someone. And so she gave the same idea to me. And then I took that idea and sort of said, okay, how do I make this really useful for a very specific cancer as opposed to just making it a generic treatment diary it's specifically designed I wanted to make something specifically designed for brain cancer the idea came from the baby book so when you first have a baby in Australia or in most Australian states you're handed a little green or blue folder depending on what state you're in and it's a baby book that has little dividers and says all of the different things you should do you know week one week two week six three months, six months, 12 months. So I used the basis of that idea of the baby book and 
tried to sort of retrofit it to something that I thought would be useful for brain cancer patients. And in that sense, this idea started with a folder that your friend gave you with some tabs and the bones of an idea around a baby book and is now on a website and has much wider distribution. Can I, just for what it's worth, it it is a beautiful piece of work. Starting with just a gorgeous quote, something to the effect of, we're sorry that you're here, but pleased you found us. Yeah, exactly correct. I'm so sorry that people will need, ever need this. If everyone ever hands this to you, I'm I'm so deeply sorry because brain cancer feels like such a, it's such a burden. But if you have to go through it, I really hope that this will help. What were the steps that you took to take this idea to where it is now? So I talked about it a lot. <laughs> <laughs> I find that hard to believe. <laughs> I designed an Excel spreadsheet because I'm an accountant and that's all I know. It was ugly. But then I sat down and was talking to a friend of mine about it. She's a graphic designer and she said, Cass, this is a great idea, but gee, it's ugly. (laughs) So my friend Anna came on board and she donated all of her time. She's a graphic designer and she just basically took all of the brain dump that I had thrown in to this survivorship diary idea and she helped me put it into a format that was visually pleasing but also far more useful for the patient. Right, so the two of you with no great ability in science? None. (laughs) Not a scientific brain between us. (laughs) Which was good in some ways because I think that that enabled us to write something that would be helpful for all patients. So you don't have to be a doctor to understand it, and that was the whole point. Uh, if I, think, I can't understand it, then a patient can't understand uh, it. And I think it was Einstein that said you can't solve a problem with the mindset that created it. Oh, that's, I have never heard that before, but I love it. <laughs> <laughs> so it goes to having a diverse group. So tell me about other partners that have come in to the project. So I was really lucky. So initially it was just Anna and I, and I went to Cure Brain Cancer and said I'd really like to do this, but it was literally the week before the shutdown and Cure Brain Cancer sort of said, we love it, but we just can't do it right now with everything else that's going on. So they directed me to another group called Peace of Mind, which is a patient advocacy group out of Geelong, which really actually fits with the product really well so that people have contact with patients every day. And they, we talked to them about what they could help with in terms of distribution and they're a charity themselves. So what I didn't want to do was create a new charity that needs to submit tax information every year and have a whole other machine behind it. That's exactly what I didn't want. So Peace of Mind gave us a really good option. It gave patients access to us. They also were really interested in the project and really passionate about it. And because last year being, you know, the COVID year, a lot of their activities were shut down. So this was a really great way to keep everybody putting back into the system and to create something useful for patients. Yeah. Now, Cass, I should actually note that the diary is available in PDF form on that website, which was? Survivorshipdiary.com. And I did see that there is a link to Peace of Mind Foundation so that people can click through and find out about them. That is correct. The diary is free. But if you feel like you would like to throw us $5 to uh, print the next one for the next patient, you can do that through Peace of Mind. And on their website, it's, it, they 
they ask you specifically if you want to donate to printing the survivorship diary so that you know that your money only goes to printing the diary. So we were also very lucky. We got some other sponsors. So a group called Care to Cure or the Brain Cancer Group, a group of doctors that helped me check the diary so thoroughly so that the diary has been okayed by neurosurgeons and radiation oncologists and chemical oncologists to make sure that it's correct and that all of the data, all of the advice that we give you is medically sound. We've also got some assistance from Cure Brain Cancer about how to talk to patients and also around distribution. And the other group is a group called the Brain Tumor Alliance Australia or the BTAA, and they are an Australia-wide group that support brain cancer patients. And they've also come on board to help us distribute and also are doing presentations on the diary in each of the capital cities around Australia at the moment. And then the last group that's come on board to help us out is the Mark Hughes Foundation. So Mark Hughes is also distributing the diary. If you were to go onto his website and ask for their help, they will send you a complimentary diary. And also they have helped us immensely with advertising and promoting the diary. So we had lots of help, which is key because you can't do something like this on your own. Yeah, and it's just fabulous that they've all come on board. What parts of the diary really resonate for you or that that you're really proud of if you like i'm proud of the entire product but i really think that patients will get the most out of chapter one which is your medical diagnosis because in those first couple of days or, or weeks after diagnosis there's so much that happens when i was diagnosed i was diagnosed on a monday And by Friday, I had a medical oncologist, I had a radiation oncologist, I had a neurosurgeon and I had a social worker. The following week, I picked up two more specialties. So getting your head around why do you need all these doctors? What are they doing? What do you need to tell them? How do you talk to them about the questions or the concerns that you have? And also how do you talk to your family and how do you identify a carer? They're things that you have to do really early in the diagnosis. And I think sometimes that's really hard to do. So that first chapter is really about helping you line yourself up for what's to come. I think you call it pick your team. Yes, that's correct. So that is one of the hints in the first part is, yeah, definitely pick your team. And and I was... Really taken by, because I love a play on words, that subsequently in the diary you talk about scanxiety. <laughs> yes, we do talk about scanxiety. I actually don't get scanxiety. It is a real thing. Lots of people do get it, but it doesn't really bother me that much. Well, it Probably it will do later on. But basically scanxiety is understanding that you, uh, you're going to feel worried about any scan as it's coming up and it's a way to how to sort of alleviate that concern in the days and the weeks before each MRI or CT scan or pet fat scan that you might have. So generally we sort of say identify your go-to people, find the people that you can talk to about it at nauseam if you have to, if that means walking the dog, do that. Shift your thinking, try to think about different things or different ways. At the end of the day, you cannot change the outcome of a scan. Worrying about it doesn't help. So that's something that people really need. I try to think about that myself. You need to talk to your doctor if you're worried, if you are having anxiety that you can get medication for that. And the other part is to get some sleep. So your brain tumors impact the efficiency of, of your brain. So any of these extra stresses make that more difficult. So if you forget your kid's lunch or all those other things that might be happening because you're worrying about 
the scan, the best way to do that is generally to get some sleep and to have a rested brain. I was taken a few years ago reading Helen Garner's rather excellent book, The Spare Room, about that question, who's caring for the carer? Uh, what's, what's your sort of ethos in regard to that issue with the usefulness of the diary? So we developed the diary to help both the patient and the carer. So the idea was that you would be able to write down the different feelings that you're having and the questions that you have, and that both a patient and a carer would be able to use the diary sort of simultaneously. The other part is that brain cancer impacts people in a really fundamental way, particularly later on in the diagnosis, such that most patients will need a carer. And for anybody that's taking care of somebody with a serious illness, that can be quite a strain. So a big part of being a good carer is about being being well in yourself. So a good portion of the last chapter in the diary, which is palliative care, is really about helping the carer, the palliative carer help the patient. Because there's really not much that I can suggest to you as a patient, but certainly the person that is in the most contact with the patient is the carer. And so the idea is to really make sure that we're doing the best we can to support them. Particularly seeing as though brain cancer hits people when they're young, it's a really, it's the biggest killer of people under 40 of any cancer in Australia, which means that it's really quite emotional. It's a really, it's a tough ride, not just for the patient, but also for the, for the carer. So it- sort of performs a function in trying to make sense of what's going on under the emotion maybe. Yeah, absolutely. And also provides some suggestions. You don't have to do it all alone. Be happy to reach out to the school community or to whoever it is that might bring meals or help with doctor's appointments or other things like that. And the other big part of it was helping carers find help themselves. You can't carry all of that load as a person and then the patient's load as well, it's, it's just too much to ask. So I think especially in palliative care, it's very important to have good support for the carer. Back to the diary, where what's, what's its distribution now? You talked about the fact that people can log on to the website, which is in the show notes and we've talked about before. Where can people get a copy of the, of the diary? Yep. So the diary, you can get through the Mark Hughes Foundation and you can get it from the website survivorshipdiary.com. And you can also pick up the phone and call Peace of Mind and Geelong and they will also send it to you. So we don't have, they're not in stores, you can't buy them, but that's because they're free. The diary is free. The diary (laughs) is free. The paper copy is free and you can download it for free as well. Cass, have any hospitals got them? All the hospitals on the East Coast have them. So, <laughs> Fantastic. Well done. <laughs> it was a big logistic project. So, yes, they're available from pretty much all the major cancer centres in Australia. That is that is absolutely fantastic. Cass, what have you learnt about yourself along the way? Learned that I'm a lot more resilient than I thought I was. I've also learnt that I love being a parent more than I thought I did. I love being at home with my children more than I thought I did. And I don't like accounting as much as I thought I did. <laughs> what a fabulous think, revelation. Well done. Yeah. <laughs> I think this has been, I think what I've learned is that while I was very unlucky with the brain tumour, I have been very lucky in other ways. So we funded the first round of the diaries myself. And so in that way, I was very lucky to have the family support to be able to do that. And I've also been very lucky with the family that I have because everybody just stepped in. I remember saying to someone in the first six months, 
it's hard to feel sad because I keep receiving flowers and people doing all these lovely things for me. I had two workplaces sending me meals. <laughs> it was nice. hard. In the first, that first yeah. six months, it was a bit of a shock, but it was also really hard to say, geez, I'm having a bad day because something nice would happen. The hard part is yet to come, but that's okay. I'm ready for that. Cass, um, we talked before about, you mentioned a, a life lesson for you about have a good GP. Have you got any others? Oh, get income protection. <laughs> Make sure that your life insurance is is up to date. Mine was mine was reasonable. I probably would have made other changes had I known what I would be up against, but I'm very lucky that I had the income protection behind me. And it's that sort of expense that when you bring up children, you sometimes wonder, should we be paying this? It's a real choice that people make. It is. It's also worth stating that you need to understand what your protection is. So I'm with an industry super fund, which means that I got in protection from today until I'm 65. But some income protection is only for two years. Some of it's only if you've been in an accident. So yep. I think it's really important to understand what you what the product is, how it operates, and if that mm. suits your lifestyle. I'll throw one of mine in. It sounds like don't just buy insurance on price. Oh, don't know. That's a terrible idea. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, good. What's your other takeaway? What if we, you know, did standard, you know, run of the mill kind of interview? We'd finish with a call for action. What's yours? My call for action is that we need more. We need more research into brain cancer. Six years before he walked on the moon, Neil Armstrong's eldest daughter Karen died of DIPG, which is a super aggressive form of childhood cancer. Today, if your daughter was diagnosed with DIPG, she'd be given the same life expectancy and she'd have the same outcomes. That's 1963. Yes, she died in 1963. So she died six years before Armstrong walked on the moon. We just have not done enough research into, into brain cancer generally. And I think DIPG is a really good example of what I mean by that. When she died, she died before he walked on the moon. Well, today you carry a computer around in your pocket in the form of your mobile phone that has more technology than the, than the computer that took them to the moon. Like that's pretty incredible that you might have an illness today that we knew about back then and we've done nothing to change the life expectancy or the outcomes for. So if I take my accounting brain into this, what I know is that more, more research yields better outcomes and better outcomes cost less in the long run, to uh, to the to society. So we need to see better outcomes in brain cancer research. There is nowhere near enough money being spent on research. Now, as I said, if I knew anything about medical research, I'd be doing that. I wouldn't have bothered with the diary. If we had good research and we had good outcomes, we wouldn't need the diary. My closing message is that I'd really like to see more research so we can have better outcomes for brain cancer patients. And the best way to do that is to fund research. Such an important message. Cass, congratulations on the Survivorship Diary. You truly are a force of nature and it's been a joy and a privilege to talk with you today. Go well. Thanks so much. Thanks for listening. This podcast is produced by Civic Mind, specialists in governance and ethics for local and state government agencies. To find out more, head to the website civicmind.com.au. And so you don't miss an episode, make sure you subscribe to Making a Difference in your favourite podcast app. And if you like the episode, please leave me a five-star review. It really helps other people to find the show. I'm your host, Steve Cooper, and I'll speak to you next time.